Welcome to the fifth episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics come together to talk about our historical moment in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas. This time we have a distinguished guest, uh, Lynn Siegel, and as tradition has it, uh, Alan, would you like to give our guest a proper introduction? Yes, hello, and we're delighted to be joined by Lynn Siegel today who is the Anniversary Professor of Psychology and Gender Studies at the Psychosocial Studies Department at Birkbeck College. Lynn is a towering figure in British feminism uh, in particular and the left in general. Uh, she's author of several well-known seminal books, including uh, Straight Sex, uh, Rethinking the Politics of Pleasure, which was reissued recently by uh, Verso, also Making Trouble, Why Feminism, and then two recent books as well, Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy, and Out of Time, The Pleasures and Peril of Aging. And it is to that latter book, uh, Out of Time and the Keyword of Aging, that we are hoping to chat with Lynn today. So hello, Lynn. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Lynn, uh, what we'd like to do is to talk about aging generally and then start to shift the conversation along but to begin with, what, what, what's the best way of approaching the question of, or the issue of aging? Well, for a long, long time, we've all been aware of the problems of ageism, of gerontophobia, and the fact that once you are old, you are just more or less expected to fade away, particularly women, even faster than men. You become invisible, no longer objects of desire, and so on. But then... There were rather concerted attempts, mainly pushed by feminists, to change this. And this seemed to catch on in a way. You got lots of TV programs, beginning with Golden Girls, really, and then various films that have seemed to um, present older people as really just like the young, not really very different. Now, that's very interesting and going to be interesting in these times because really the message was you can stay forever young. That is, there's no big difference between you and the young. You're not really becoming more fragile. You haven't got new needs that you might need the state to meet and so on. And so that's the sort of dilemma that's going to be highlighted now when I think, although it appeared that there was more interest in the elderly, you got the oldie magazines and products launched for older people to uh, enjoy life and travel and go on their cruises and so on. Um, but at the same time, behind that, the um, idea of ageing as seamless decline, the idea of the um, horribleness of being dependent or needy was always there. So uh, I was going over, Lynn, of your impressive list of publications, and you had a lot of interest in Judith Butler, of course, along the way. And one thing I was interested in is Judith Butler's idea of those who can be grieved for when you no longer are part of a discourse. And Butler uh, states that once you are left out, something happens sort of ontologically in that you become no longer recognized as a meaningful subject, thus you cannot even be grieved for. And especially thinking about the current situation where the dead become numbers. There's so many thousands dead, so many hundreds dead every day. And we, in Italy, we saw army trucks taking away the corpses and so on. Especially from this Butlerian perspective, what do you think about this idea? How can we grieve in this situation? Can we do that? 
first thing to say is that um, Judith Butler has obviously been seminal for all feminists, really all of us, since the 1990s and her book, uh, Making Trouble. And it's interesting to see the ties between that book and what she's gone on to do, which is so relevant for today, as you say, which is to emphasise our vulnerability, our interdependence, but also the denial of that, the denial that um, not all lives matter. Some lives are not grievable. And she takes great exception to that, quite rightly saying, well, the truth is, in reality, we're all interdependent. And of course, nothing shows this more than this disease, the idiocy of people like Trump in building walls and so on, and imagining that he can keep bad things out when all he's doing, of course, is incubating all the bad things within. So the point about um, Judith's work is precisely to say that we're we're all connected to other people. And that's what we have to recognize. And that none of us can really be fully human unless we recognize our connection to everybody and, of course, our connection to the world. Some people say Judith didn't talk enough about the world and about green politics. I don't think that's true, and I think she said about that recently. But but the main point is to see that all lives matter, all living things matter. And so, of course, there's the world that's allowing us to survive, and um, that just is so crucial now. And and uh, so Judith Butler, I would say, is more crucial than ever. We're used to in neoliberalism having a sort of cost-benefit analysis prevail, but it seems now one of the things we're talking about is a different kind of calculus has been applied in terms of who uh, hospitals will allow to have access to respirators. We're seeing this reassurance as though it is that the majority of people who are dying have got underlying health issues and are elderly, for example, as though somehow that makes it not so worrisome. So there does seem to be now this kind of limiting in the valuing of the elderly. Do you think that that's a, an issue currently? Oh, it's very much an issue, and it links back to the two previous things, that there was an apparent recognition that old people should be allowed to be included in society and we can sell things to them and they can be big consumers. But actually behind that, there was always talk of the tsunami of ageing, of the fact that we were going to have more elderly people claiming pensions. Forget the fact that they will have paid into their pensions all their lives. But anyway, to the extent that they were going to be dependent, you always got people like, say, Martin Amos saying, well, the best thing to do really is to get rid of them. And he was saying that um, at some 15, 20 years ago, you know, they should just be given a handshake and some cyanide and that could be the end of them. When they reach 70, he's well over 70 now, so I don't think he's followed his own advice. But certainly there is an incredibly pernicious resurgence of what was underlying that idea that we could stay forever young, which fitted in completely, as you say, with, that we could roll back the state. And we were actually not going to recognise the needs and fragility of the elderly any more than we ever properly handled the needs and fragility of the disabled or the sick. You know, more and more that was to go back to the family 
supposedly to the community, though, of course, communities were robbed of all money from central state and families, too, no longer on the whole have any caretakers inside them because everybody is working ever harder up until now in um, the paid workforce in order just to keep a roof over their head. And so, you know, what we're seeing now is this total crisis once more of neoliberal rolling back of the state and privatisation, which, of course, we saw in 2008 with the banking collapse, but now we see it absolutely you know, that our important workers are obviously the care workers, those who actually do the invisible labour of keeping everything going. They're the people who we so undervalued, who are more or less the only people that we really need now. But um, along with that, certainly, as you say, is this somewhat hidden ageism absolutely in the surface. You are going to use your loved ones, your loved ones being people like me, anybody basically over 60 with any underlying health problems, as though that was going to be acceptable. But people have really fought back against that. I mean, you're probably going to ask me about that later, but that has not been accepted, which is really wonderful. So many things, I think, are going to... um, I hope, bounce back and turn around, which is all is the turning around of this whole neoliberal ideology that unless you're maximally productive, you know, for the profits of the few, you're of no interest to anybody. I think, Lynn, if I'm right, your book, Out of Time, which, by the way, I, I definitely recommend. And I wonder, since then, we've had, for example, the Brexit referendum the rise of Trump, and it seems to have magnified this idea that there's a divergence between the political interests of the young and of the old. Um, And we've seen that in the last general election, for example, uh, in the United Kingdom, where there was the exit poll data for age, that there was an almost universal support for the Labour Party. And by the time you get up to the older voters, it's an almost universal support for the Conservatives. So it's almost like a perfect X once you adopted the um, data for age. Do you think, in the light of these last few years, that there has been more of a pronounced generation gap? One has to always look carefully at these two. Labour Party activism uh, is kept alive very often by the oldies. So I think what we're dealing with, if we were to unpack all the dynamics is those left behind areas, isn't it? Where the young people have left and there are more and more older people feeling isolated, feeling paranoid and neglected and, of course, wanting Brexit, imagining somehow that this new leader can the uh, Boris Johnson or else in the States, Trump, um, can somehow help them in the form of me first, us first uh, populism that um, they put forward. Yeah, I mean, it tells us something, I think, probably about the neglect of the older generation in certain areas. I, I'm sure you wouldn't find it so in London and certain, you know, in those non-abandoned areas, I'm sure you'd find as many old as young people supporting a more progressive and radical politics. That seems to me very likely. But where it comes so much to the fore is in those areas older people are left in, who it's been very, very hard to um, um, inspire with 
any form of progressive politics because they simply feel it doesn't apply to them. So I think there, I think there are many stories to tell about those ageing differences, I suspect. We did recently have Keir Milburn on talking about generations. One of his analyses is that the issue of property ownership uh, is, is a really major distinguishing point between older people and younger people. Uh, generally, of course, he acknowledges that not all, not all elderly people are property owners. Uh, but nonetheless, he says that having a possession does allow a certain group of people to feel immunized from the precarity of the age uh, in a way which simply doesn't apply for younger people who are left completely exposed. So do you think at that material level, there is that divergence of, of class experience? As, as he puts it, by the way, he, he paraphrases Stuart Hall to say that age is now the modality in, or is one of the modalities through which we experience class. I wonder what you think of that. Not a great deal. The reason being that there are almost as many older people in poverty now as there always have been. But it's certainly true that for the middle class and the skilled working class, they have been encouraged and enabled to become property owners. But there is still an ageing poor and they just get left out of the equation. And I think they're often the people actually who are supporting Brexit for reasons I've said, because they feel completely left out and their children are not doing well. And so they just see everything as having got worse from when they used to be employed in the past and the communities that have been destroyed that they used to belong to. So you have to tease it apart. It's not simply age. Certainly it is the case that some of us in our old age have better pensions and are homeowners. There are plenty of old people who don't fit into that category though. And you know almost a third actually and they just get left out of that equation, don't they? So I don't think it's true that class has disappeared into differences of age, although I absolutely accept how hard it is for young people today. And no one, by the way, often is doing more to try and help them than their parents and grandparents very often who are literally uh, spending so much time doing childcare or saving money to um, give to their children and so on. So you get, I know this isn't what Keir Milburn is saying, you know, Keir Milburn wants to rightly emphasise the plight of the young, which is very, very real. This splitting that we see happening in discourse all the time between the so-called snowflake generation uh, versus the so-called gammon generation, that often, and we see this agitated through things like, for those familiar with British TV, BBC Question Time almost is set up in this kind of adversary manner where they'll they'll bring in people to, to express or they'll find people to express these viewpoints, that it seems to be a split that's been constantly agitated and presented to us as though it's real. I think that's true. I think for quite some time there's been an orchestration of age warfare. I think there was even a game in the States called something like Age War or something but in fact, what we see is something incredibly different from that nowadays. I mean, we see elderly people who have been incredibly isolated and felt totally neglected 
suddenly feeling less isolated and less neglected because in all the mushrooming of mutual aid in most areas, there's people checking out, you know, really making graphs of where the elderly are living and knocking on their doors and saying, do you need anything? So I do think that that is actually breaking down at the moment. I mean, if we can continue to see that, you know, after we enter the recession that's going to follow this and everybody who can get a job will be back working overtime again. You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's so interesting to ponder what's going to happen. But I think many of those old ideas about distancing and splits and conflicts between us are being really shaken up at the moment. And uh, we're seeing a lot of different dynamics taking place. And um, you know, it would be wonderful to think that they might continue after the end of this crisis, wouldn't it? I've been listening to the Irish journalist Olivia O'Leary, who's kind of a, a giant of Irish uh, journalism, and she's been giving these these excellent um, essays on, on Irish national radio. But one of the things that she's talked about, she herself is in her 70s, by the way, is that she comes from a generation of Irish women who have always had to assert themselves against the patriarchy, uh, that, that, that any gains that they made uh, were made in, in a field of heightened struggle. Um, and she now finds herself dependent on the goodwill of younger people, which is forthcoming, and, and, and she finds forthcoming with a lot of grace, and she finds herself very moved by this, but also just how strange it is to suddenly be in this area of the... to be someone who's dependent, who, who can only really express gratitude that's right. I, I think that um, dependency is a huge issue that people are grappling with at the moment because we all like to cling to the illusion, and it is an illusion, that we're autonomous and independent and can simply look after ourselves. You know, the one thing to return to Judith Butler that she's always said, that I've said, and that socialist feminists have always said is that is always an illusion. If you're not liable to um, loss and to recognizing your own frailty, then you're not really experiencing life properly. Because actually, all of us are always dependent on the recognition we get from others around us. Even, you know, however fit and healthy and athletic we may be, unless someone is recognizing us as that, then, um, you know, we can begin to fade away into depression and mental illness and isolation, which is so common today. And so I think that dependency and um, autonomy are actually two sides of the same thing. To be autonomous, to feel strong and independent, you have to have people around you who see you like that, who recognise you as such. You have to be able to give and to help. Lots of women in Ireland actually were very involved in the struggle, weren't they? And so they obviously could feel strong and independent because they had to with their men in prison and so on and their, their sons and, and indeed daughters in prison. But, you know, for me, the crucial thing that I hope we might get out of this moment is recognising that we are, in fact, all dependent on each other and, and that partially other people can allow us to have the illusion of total autonomy and independence. And um, without that, we all begin to wilt and fade. So 
I think it's good for people to actually feel their dependency at all ages and to feel what it's like to rely on others. And, you know, now I've been working on care with a group of people in um, the care collective. And the main point that we argue is that actually to be fully human, we both all need to care as well as to be cared for. And what's more, we need to have people to care for. It's not the case that when we're caring for something, somebody, we're just all giving and receiving nothing back. Those being cared for, you know, are crucial. So that's what I mean about about dependency and autonomy being two sides of the same coin. It's good for us to recognise our dependency, whatever our age. So I hope that that will be some lesson more of us might learn today. In a, a relatively recent work on happiness, uh, you wrote that there are precipitously rising rates of anxiety and depression all around us and pathologizing of uh, personal misery is a sort of state and emergence of global capital and global capitalist culture and subjectivity. Now, the late Mark Fisher, he wrote about the cancellation of the future, or more accurately, the idea of the slow cancellation of the future, that capitalism in its incessant commodification of culture for him has led to a state where nothing new happens anymore. So capitalism now now hopelessly repeating the same while increasingly creating injustice and inequality across the world. Now that we have this situation where we sort of were accepting that in a grand scale at least, our people were unhappy, misery is abounding, depression is abounding, but still there were no real ideas of an outside. As so many have written, it's easier. I think it's Frederick Jameson who said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than any little change in the social system we have constructed ourselves. So this kind of situation that we have right now with the virus, when it's sort of seen as something that penetrates from nowhere, it's an intrusion. Uh, We talked with Nora Campbell last time about it. it almost feels like an alien interjection into the system. So in your book of happiness, even though you recognize the present state being rather unfortunate, you still have optimistic words about this. Do you think that we need, if you will, system shocks like this to shock us out of the tedium of normalcy? That was a long question. And what a pity that Mark isn't here to see that this cancelled future has actually come along very fast and is not quite what we might have been expecting The whole point of what I wrote in Radical Happiness was not really so much to talk about well-being and happiness, but to illustrate the axiom which runs through it of William Blake that joy and woe are woven fine and that um, unless you're prepared for woe and misery, then you don't really know what happiness is because happiness will never last very long. Happiness is always something that is momentary, unless it's simply a sort of complacency, you know, I'm doing all right. So to be able to just say, I'm happy now and tick those boxes is usually to be complacent and unaware of what's going on around you. So I wrote Radical Happiness precisely to talk about those fleeting moments of joy, fleeting moments of joy, which I argue are most memorable precisely when they're collective, when we're in it together and when we can discuss it, when we're most 
outside of that gloomy tyrant, the self. And, you know, for some people, I think this is a moment for that. I do think a lot of the people who don't have to self-isolate as I do, um, because I have underlying health issues, who are involved in mutual aid are really, you know, they're feeling so agentic in the world. You know, their life really has meaning. Unlike the boring jobs that uh, the bullshit jobs, as David Graeber would have said, that many of them are doing now. Now there's really a point to waking up in the morning and thinking, who needs me today? You know, what useful thing can I do today? And for us who are self-isolating, the point of our lives, I think, is to um, embrace that, you know, to embrace what people are trying to do to work out how we keep up contacts as we are here, you know, there are very many ways, fortunately for us today, to keep in virtual contact with each other or to yell over our garden walls or if we were Italian, to sing over our balconies and to really be aware of the world outside. Uh, George Monbiot, among others, has so much to say about that. They talk about social distancing. It's not social distancing it's physical distancing that's going on. And what we're seeing is far more social connection than in our everyday lives when we might be in a crowded office or worse still going to, going to work in these crowded tubes or on the buses in which we feel no social closeness to anyone at all. Now it's possible to feel that social closeness. So I think that people some of the time are actually feeling more joyful today and wow, we're going to be joyful when this moment passes, aren't we? When we start to celebrate being able to actually touch people and hug people again. But I think we're laying the groundwork for that in what we're doing. At the same time, though, you know, loss and grievability is absolutely what's going on at the moment. You know, many of us will lose people we love and not only old people, actually, and old people, we're going to grieve just as much as anybody else. And so this issue of loss and grieving is a crucial one, which I have talked about in both my books on ageing and in the book on radical happiness, that, that to think about loss, to take time to grieve, is something that we has been forbidden. I mean, as Philip Ari said ages ago, death became almost taboo after the Second World War, you know, and mourning was just something that was you were meant to get over very quickly or else you, it was pathological to spend too much time mourning. When in fact, unless you are really given time to mourn and to um, think about the person you've lost, or people that one's losing distance. Grieving can be both close and distant. Unless you can really think about that and take that in, then you're not really able to respond to life at all. So we all need time to mourn. And mourning also, you know, it's not just a dead feeling mourning. Mourning is about taking in the people you've lost. You know, they become a part of you. Freud, of course, talks about that in The Ego and the Id and earlier in um, Mourning and Melancholy, Melancholia, that, um, you know, what we need is the time to appreciate all that someone we've lost has given us. And so they live on in us, but, but that 
enriches us. And so mourning can be an enriching period in which we actually can become more alive to life. And that's something that just hasn't been recognised socially at all, where, you know, we always had to, as as Barbara Ehrenreich said, smile or die. You know, the, the nonsense of all the well-being discourse coming from the happiness industry that, you know, I mean, there was literally some firm where um, you, the door wouldn't open unless you smiled, apparently. I can't remember where I saw that. You might have seen it. But, you know, smile or die really was the order, the order of the day. And uh, hopefully now, you know, the idiocy of that might become more apparent to us. It's so sad to hear these stories that people can't have funerals because of the distancing, uh, people dying in isolation, uh, pe- people not being able to visit their family uh, in their in their final days. And it does seem that one of the things that, that is happening in coronavirus is that the normal channels of grieving uh, simply don't exist. It's so sad to think, but also in terms of what happens to all those people in this type of liminal situation where somebody has died but they're unable to have a proper funeral, they're unable to see them. I wonder if that's true, Alan, because partly I think that's often true. I mean, many people, by the time they die, have lost many of their peers and loved ones, and they often end up having a rather lonely death in which not many people are there. Today, when that happens more unexpectedly, then you are perhaps right that it's you know it is indeed sad not to be able to literally hold the hand of a loved one you're losing or to be there to throw soil on the grave but we can talk about it and think about it and stay in touch though can't we and so i think you're both i think what you're saying is true and there is a, a sadness to that but at least we can think about that sadness and think about well are most people's lives mourned I don't think they are. I think by the time most of the elderly die, there's not a lot of people mourning them, only one or two if they're lucky. And so, again, to to think about that, to rethink, for instance, why on earth we don't have more um, of those, what's it called, the hospitals that deal with dying? Palliative. There was a book recently Um, called Dear Friend, written about palliative care. And palliative care is almost not funded at all within the NHS. And of course it should be, you know, because there isn't a concern generally for how, you know, how we age and die. That's just that people don't want to think and talk about that. So perhaps the fact, as you say, that we can't, even those nearest and dearest can't be holding the hand or at the funeral um, of those who die... It would be wonderful if that made us think, well, yes, how do people die? I mean, most people aren't getting very good treatment when they die. They're very often left on a hospital corridor. And this is every day. This is long before the coronavirus. We're not dealing with the final stages of life. We're not celebrating people's lives and allow, you know, allowing them the care and support they need, both from loved ones, but not just from loved ones you know I in my care collective we talk about promiscuous care a sense that everyone can care for others we're all capable of caring and that's what we want to see more of and so 
you know, we really need more care for everyone, genuinely, as the welfare state was supposed to offer from cradle to grave. Now, of course, we get a carelessness, a lack of care from cradle to grave, you know, more children dying at birth, but also um, mothers not able to cope, you know, no support for young people, which is why knife crimes have been soaring and on and on through to those doing social care for the elderly, many of whom, these older people who often, as I said before, are poor, not actually enjoying their mortgages and going on luxury cruises, but in fact, incredibly, with incredible difficulty, trying to care for those who are older than themselves and and feeling totally isolated and totally unsupported. Because one thing we know is the appalling lack of adequate social care. We knew that before, an appalling lack of adequate social care. And so, you know, all these things are going to have to be rethought. And you know, perhaps if we'd had a Labour government, it might have been easier to think of how to rethink them. But we've got to use this moment to say things have to be different. You know, the world should be based on care and concern for each other, not the stupid profits of the few who don't even know what to do with their zillions. You know, you know the idiocy of who is it who owns the rails in an island and wants to be helped out because he's making less... Richard Branson. Richard Branson, you know, asking to be asking for money from the state at the moment in case he he ends up a billion short this year. You know, I mean, that is such nonsense, isn't it? And people can see this is nonsense, even though we know that was exactly the outcome of 2008. It was precisely that those who caused it, in this case the bankers were the ones who, in the end, came out of it best, and it was the poor who got screwed. Well, this time, this time, I'd say, it's got to be the wealthy who also help pay our way out of this, you know, as we move towards some more egalitarian uh, future. We must ask you a question about consumer culture. Oh, consumer culture, what do I know about that? <laughs> well, one of the claims made is that consumer culture locks people into a type of eternal childhood. And then Alain Badiou made this point recently. I, I don't know if you saw the, the lectures he gave to children where he was talking quite a bit about uh, aging. But one of the things he mentioned is that becoming older today simply means that you're able to afford the biggest toys of all. So do you do you think that there's something in this promise of eternal youth which is facilitated by consumerism? Wouldn't you think that Badir would have slightly greater sense of class and know that class still operates amongst the aged? You know, it's really so amazing that people don't realise that, that they buy the media depiction of the elderly as all wealthy. Um, so, you know, it's just not at all that older people can consume more. I mean, maybe Badia can, but most of the older people I know actually have less because they've lent their money to their kids, either to pay their rent or to try and get mortgages. And you know, the, the idea that they're simply luxury consuming for themselves, I don't know who these elderly people are. I've literally not met one, but I suppose there must be a few because some people go on their cruises and so on. But it's such an absurd generalization. I mean, most people I know, as they age, consume less. 
for obvious reasons. They're going out less. They're, they feel they've got enough. <laughs> I, I just don't know where it comes from, the idea that the elderly are consuming more and more. I mean, you're, you're in marketing, so you can tell me if there are reasons to believe that. But I would be very surprised that people I see consuming more are young people and actually people your age, Alan, some of your friends indeed. I see, yeah. <laughs> Going to bars and, and pubs all the time. I, I just don't see the elderly doing it. I, I, I think it's a cliche. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that Badia doesn't know more. Alan is notorious for eating avocado bread all the time. <laughs> Among other things. My generation, and I am a particular fragment of my generation, of course, but we came out of the 60s um, precisely with quite a strong anti-consumerism. We wore secondhand clothes. We cut our own hair. We held jumble sales and bought things at jumble sales. I mean, we were anything but consumerist. I know there's, again, another cliche of the 60s of high consumerism, but actually coming from the 60s into the feminism of the 70s, we were, we made our own stuff, actually. I mean, even our own music, our own, almost everything I remember was the opposite of consumerism. And there was definitely an anti-consumerist ethic amongst feminism, which, which many of us have stuck by. Now, obviously, you know, as I say, we were a fragment of um, that generation. But I think, you know, I think our ideas that were about caring and sharing and, uh, and greater egalitarianism have remained with many of us into our old age. But then most of us are not those isolated oldies in these rundown areas of the country who feel more and more paranoid about um, uh, what they're missing out on. Felix Guattari had the idea of capitalized subjectivation. So compared to the if you will, generation, what you just described, do you just think that this intensification of capitalism has created a situation where the young people or younger gener generations just simply their subjectivation has been capitalized to the point everything is measured in money, uh, even you know social relationships are sometimes measured in money. I just saw a newspaper article where young people together were asked, why don't you have children? And one of the answers was, I don't think children will add value to my relationship. You know, I do think that young people who came of age under Thatcher definitely came to think that their value was connected with success and success was connected with money. Uh, I think that, you know, that's the sort of thing that Wendy Brown like, writes a lot about, doesn't she, in the undoing of the demos, that we're just all roving um, pieces for capital to make money out of. I think it, it's slightly overplayed, but that there was some truth in it. But then, you know, what's happening now? What's happening now clearly is something different. It's certainly the case that um, those jumble sale clothes that we went around in <laughs> were not what people kept wearing in the 90s. And uh, when we used to cut each other's hair, such that someone said of me, oh, she always looked like she was pulled through a hedge backwards and so on, that uh, some of us are going to start looking like that again as we can't go to uh, hairdressers and we cut each other's hair. But um, so I'm sure there's something in what 
Guattari said about us becoming um, sort of roving specks for capital. That's Wendy Brown's idea that, um, you know, consuming is all. You know, we see how easily that can begin to collapse, don't we? And and what's become more important to pe- to many people, to many people, is the sense that we ought to be able to connect. We ought to try to connect. That's what's important in life, you know, not the glamorous suits and the... Um, the fashion tags that we're able to display. That becomes more true if other things collapse, you know, clearly if if belonging to trade unions or hopefully progressive political parties, whether Green or the Labour Party, particularly in its moment of progressiveness under Corbyn, which we hope doesn't disappear but might, when there, when there aren't opportunities to... Um, do anything that that seems interesting and progressive, then all you've got, I guess, is a sense of yourself and how you can display yourself to the world. But maybe maybe we'll begin to think differently. What do you think? Interesting to see what uh, will this uh, whole corona situation, again, in the sense of libidinality or subjectivity, will it just pass away and will we go back to normal? Or will it actually have some lasting ramifications? Will it change this whole milieu? Will there be different possibilities of subjectivation post this situation? Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to reflect on the AIDS crisis isn't it? And, and how much, um, you know, hero- heroism really and um, connectedness and, and concern for others that that brought out amongst many in the gay community but then how quickly that did begin to dissipate once there was treatment for HIV AIDS. So, yes, it's going to be hard to know how to hold on to that sense of mutual aid and connectiveness that I think has been growing uh, over the last few months. But, um, you know, some of us are going to try. (laughs) Although the whips will be out to get us back to work and doing overtime, won't it? I'm reminded of uh, David Harvey describing the immediate aftermath of September the 11th in New York, where he was, uh, Mm. saying that suddenly when you had this suspension of the flow of capital, all that happened then was people came out onto the streets of New York and talked to each other. And of course, what they were talking about was geopolitics, how they could help each other now that everything was suspended. And for just a short period of time, there was just this great sense of connectivity, of people thinking, talking about politics. But then the pessimistic uh, aspect is that that, that once the flow um, recovered, it's as if it never happened I wonder, will something similar happen or will this be so big in its impact that the idea that things could just go back the way they were is is naive? I don't know. I suppose the lessons of history would tend to support the idea that things will go back to how they were, particularly under the story government. Um, But, you know, there's going to be a long period of crisis, isn't there? Um, So it does depend really what we're able to mobilize and how many people we can engage. It's going to be hell of a difficult to stop things just going back to normal. But I think we we have a window, don't we? We have a window following this rupture where we can keep on trying to argue for radical ideas. And as Zizek likes to joke, 
don't worry, there'll be another crisis coming soon anyway. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> you know, there are underlying forces that are there that won't go away. Probably they're stronger than they were after 9-11 or some of the earlier crises. But it's going to be a tough call <laughs> for us. <laughs> Thank you very much. This was very nice listening to you. Nice to yes, chat. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Bye-bye. Okay.